Grab a helmet. Today, we're going on a ride. I mean, two skinny tyres at very high speed. Very high speed. It's a sense of freedom and empowerment. It's just kind of completely changed my life. This is a radical, amazing, democratic piece of engineering that moved people's bodies in new ways that transformed the world. It wasn't just about getting on your bike, it was much more. It's just wanting to scream this stuff from the rooftops and tell people that the power of the bicycle is more than you can imagine. Welcome to Unfinished Business, the podcast that explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. I'm Polly Russell, a curator responsible for an exhibition of the same name at the British Library in London and around the UK. The exhibition is brilliant, but sadly closed due to COVID restrictions. But when we open our doors again, please do try and visit. When we were planning the exhibition, I wanted to get deep into some of the themes it covers, and that's where this podcast comes in. Each episode, a different co-presenter with an area of expertise or a burning question to ask will be using objects from the exhibition to explore ideas and themes with invited guests. Today, cycling, its history, the impact the sport has had on women in the past and how it affects us today. Perhaps this seems like a bit of an odd choice. Let me explain. In the late 19th century, the bicycle became a very popular way of getting around for many Victorians. The history of cycling dates back to the early 19th century, but for around 70 years, bikes were so dangerous and difficult to handle, the public viewed them with understandable caution. But in the 1880s and 90s, the development of back wheels driven by a chain, pneumatic tyres and front steering meant for improved speed, comfort and safety, and a cycling craze took off. Suddenly, women were able to leave their homes and travel where they wanted, when they wanted. They're able to have new experiences and adventures, move at new times and at new places and at new kind of thrilling speeds than they'd ever had before. Like it must have been exhilarating for them. That was cycling fan and historian Kat Youngnickel. Kat's fascinated not only with the impact of bikes on women and their lives, but how many pioneering women started designing new forms of cycle wear that granted them even more freedoms. We'll be hearing more from Kat later in the episode and she'll be talking about a wonderful dress we have in the exhibition from the 1880s, which a woman adjusted so that she could hop on a cycle. But fast-forwarding to today, the significance of cycling for women is still being felt. With many sports, women often struggle to get the same recognition and representation as men. But elite female cyclists have had some incredible successes. Take legends such as Laura Kenny, Victoria Pendleton, Lizzie Armistead and Nicole Cook, the first British woman to win an Olympic gold medal in any cycling discipline. I'm going to explore today why they've been able to break through in this way. But there's still a lot more to be done, as today's co-host knows all too well. Cycling really should be for everybody. Male, pale and stale is one of the things that I call it. You need to change that up. My name is Jules Walker and I have unfinished business. If you walk around my house now, between me and my partner, we have 12 different bikes at home. <laughs> road bikes, commuter bikes that I've got. I'm dabbling in mountain biking next year, so I'm going to have a mountain bike coming my way in January, which I'm so excited about. This is Jules Walker, cyclist, writer, activist and blogger. She also goes by the name Lady Velo and has written a brilliant book called Back in the Frame, How to Get Back on Your Bike Whatever Life Throws at You, about the impact cycling has had on her life and her mental health after being diagnosed with depression. Jules rediscovered the joy of cycling aged 28 after a 10-year hiatus from the saddle and is now passionate about the impact the sport has on women. She's especially keen on making it as inclusive as possible. 
So in today's show, we're riding with the pioneer cyclists of the 19th century and pedaling ahead to meet some of the passionate bikers of today, including one woman who's dedicated her life to the sport. How could a woman overtake oh. him on a hill? Are you kidding? <laughs> Do you even know who I am? <laughs> who she is? Olympian Victoria Pendleton. But that's not the point. I was like, wow, wow, wow. And Jules will be getting on her bike to have a ride with an awesome women's only cycling club. It's a, a sunny Saturday morning. It's very early. I'm in Regent's Park, which is like the cycling go-to in London. I'm going to be hanging out with uh, Velociposse, who are an incredible women's cycling group that I've known of for the longest time. And I know I'm going to have a great time, even though I haven't even started cycling yet. I'm super excited about this. We'll return to Regent's Park soon. But before all of that, I wanted to know where Jules's love for the two-wheeled machine came from. It seems to start with her sister. She had this beautiful yellow, red and chrome beauty of a BMX burner that she used to ride around on, on our council estate and beyond. And she got that bike in the late 70s, early 80s. So it was unusual to see this black girl riding around doing the thing on that bike at the time. <laughs> so that was incredibly cool. And I ended up inheriting the bike off of her when she unfortunately fell out of love with cycling when she was a teenager and the love affair for cycling I guess was sparked off there so I didn't do it in any kind of competitive level or anything like that it was just simply for the joy of being on that BMX. Do you think there's something not to stretch it too far but something political about getting on a bike so when I you know if I make the decision to go to my local shops in the car mm -hmm. I don't feel good about that I just sort of do it but when I get on the bike and go to the shops somehow I sort of it's like energising. I feel like I'm part of the community. I'm sort of more present in the world. Completely. I feel like I'm more connected with the world when I'm on a bike. You know, even if it's a case of going somewhere, knowing exactly where it is that I need to get to from A to B, but I'll decide I'll go to C or H or Z. I'll, I'll go everywhere in between because I can, because I have the freedom to be able to just zigzag and, and do that. That in itself feels like it's a, a very political thing to, to have that freedom of movement. But, you know, the act of being on a bike for me as a, a black woman, because I'm not going to avoid the elephant in the room talking about that, is a political act in itself. My presence, my taking up space in that world, which is predominantly white and male. That's an anomaly to see somebody like me on a bike. Could you talk to me a bit about what you said, the elephant in the room, but why is it that women of colour in particular are quite absent from cycling? I always talk about the gatekeepers being the barrier and not your gender or your race being the barrier, because that's something that gets thrown at me a lot. Like I'm asked what the problem is with, you know, being a, a black woman. Yeah, my being a black woman is not a yeah, problem in any way, fault. shape or form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, you know, I talk about the, the gatekeepers, the, the old school gatekeepers that still exist in that world. If you can't see it how you expect it to be, it representation comes in on all of the levels that you may not even think it comes in at. So you could be talking about the media and advertising and marketing that surrounds cycling. You could be talking about the people that work behind the scenes at cycling organisations and brands. When it's a boardroom full of maybe middle-aged white men and white women who are in cycling already and can't understand why people think there are barriers to, to cycling or barriers to entry because they're doing it and they know so many other people that are doing it. How on earth would you have any idea that there are changes to be made? Jules is clearly immersed in the world of wheels, but I wanted to know what she was hoping to gain from making this podcast. I'm hoping to get more knowledge and more information about the relationships between women and cycling from this podcast. I'm hoping that other people out there listening to it will understand that the, the bicycle is more than just a frame and a wheel and some components. It's something that I've, I've said before, and I've said this in the book as well, that the bicycle is definitely more than the sum of its parts. So let's get back on the bike. We're going to start in central London with a fantastic women's cycling group called Velociposse. 
The club is for women, trans and non-binary people. They ride, race and hold skill sessions with their main aim being to get more women cycling. It's a perfect day for it. The weather is absolutely gorgeous. It's such a glistening morning and it's just the canopy of the trees around us looks amazing. The sound of the cyclists going past and the cadence of them riding, the clicking of the hubs, the spinning of the wheels. It just feels very right to be here immediately. So we've got a, a group of cyclists going past. I recognise some of them with the Women's 100 Rafa kit on that I was in myself just a couple of weeks ago and some folks from the Black Cyclist Network as well. So it's a multitude of people here and it already feels really good. After the ride, Jules caught her breath and sat down with some of the women she'd just cycled with. In an outdoor cafe, she began by asking them what cycling means to them. For my 26th birthday, uh, some years ago, I took my boyfriend's hybrid bike and I cycled around Scotland on my own on Google Maps and it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was absolutely stupidest, but on my, on my 26th birthday, I was literally cycling down a mountain and I had my backpack on a basket at the back <laughs> of my bike. And I was just like, this is the best feeling ever. Wow. And I was like, that's like, this is, okay, this is the least stressed I've been in my life. And like, I'm doing this on my own and like, my legs are just making me go places mm, yeah. and then I decided not to be stressed anymore That's so cool. yeah it was the stupidest thing to do never do that like <laughs> like, like like don't use google maps to do a tour of scotland and like like I want to ask and I'm I've become more open talking about this but if cycling is something that has helped you through particularly tough times but so I lost my dad about a year and a half ago now to brain cancer and having I did just ride like I rode commutes and everything just because like like I was doing my masters at the same time and it was like tough and it's winter and like I didn't even ride long distances at that time because I was a bit afraid of going going really far but it was one of the things that like it's like I can always get on my bike and I can always go for a ride around like some wetlands I just I walked and cycled my way through the first months of grief but yeah it's like a thing you can do when you feel like there's not much you can do. So when I first moved to London, I struggled a lot with anxiety and depression and just found myself, like, yeah, really struggling to, like, get out of bed some days, like you said, and found it so overwhelming. Like, mm. I'd never lived in a big city before. But I found that, like, just being able to, like, get on my bike, it just felt like something that, like, I could do by myself. It made me feel a lot more, like, in control. Yeah. Mm. Yes, uh, control is such a thing. Yeah. It's these kinds of conversations that I actually find really helpful as well but yeah what what does it mean to you to be in a cycling club like Velocipossi and what what do you get out of I don't know if it's a sense of belonging in the club as well because it's all women and everyone's super super welcoming there's a lot of things that you probably wouldn't like ask about if you were in a mixed group like we have absolutely talked about non-vaginas today what does it mean that my vagina's really numb? <laughs> What's wrong with my saddle? Should it be forward or back? And everyone was just like, oh, yeah, let's talk about this. <laughs> you would just never do that otherwise. That's so true. <laughs> and on the WhatsApp group just this week, we had, there was an entire chat about underwear. It's like, no, no underwear. Yeah. It's like, this is like this is the best yeah. shampoo cream. It's like, yeah. this is if you get sore. And like, yeah. Things like getting genuinely saddle sore or flap mash for the first time as well and just being like okay and having women I could talk to about that I feel like I you've learned, got something to I say learned, I, learned, I learned all of those words from women's hour I was like why have I never heard about this it's like what is it yeah. Yeah. do you ever feel there's the element of those subjects being taboo because I I, yeah. I felt like that when I, I got into cycling and then started to experience certain things in cycling and I was like who, who, do I, yeah, who do I talk to about this? And when the network of women, I could sit down and have those conversations about having a sore vagina and yeah. not feeling particularly like, you know, <laughs> about it. That's so. why the community is so important, though, because you can talk about it. Whereas, like, I was Googling just, like, a few months ago, like, what is going on with, like, where the pressure is on your vulva and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's just loads of articles written by men for men that are about, like, putting chamois cream, like, between, like, your, like in your butt crack. Yeah. It's like, like, that's not what I need <laughs> that's not where the problem is and like it's just not written about online mm. or anywhere so then you like talk to women and they're like yeah that is that is a normal problem to yeah. have it just normalizes all that kind of thing and yeah. it like it's a really big part of cycling for women because it's not 
I mean, it's it's the bike's kind of designed for men, isn't it? Yes. Like where the pressure is. I loved hearing from Velocipossi, and it turns out that the challenge of safety, clothing and comfort isn't anything new when it comes to women and cycling, as Kat Jungninkel told us when we met up with her. Kat has written a brilliantly titled book called Bikes and Bloomers, Victorian Women Inventors and Their Extraordinary Cycle Wear, so I couldn't think of anyone more perfect to join our discussion. And it turns out... The cycling circle is really quite small. Jules and Kat, you know each other, don't you? Or you yes, yeah. we do, you, yeah. How, how do you know each other? Just what's cycling. the connection? Yeah, cycling, <laughs> social media, cycling family, always okay. connected, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I sometimes get called a cycling sewing sociologist, which I quite like because it combines so many of my favourite things together. Um, so I'm a sociologist at Goldsmiths, the University of London. I've been a cyclist for quite a while. I tour, I race, I commute, I hang out with friends. And my mum taught me to sew. So I have made quite a lot of my clothes kind of um, throughout my life. But like many, I struggled to find clothes that worked really well on a bicycle, as well as didn't look too odd away from a bicycle. Kat is passionate about cycling, the history of cycling and the clothes associated with the sport. A cycling craze was sweeping through the nation in the 1890s and both men and women, talking particularly about um, middle and upper class men and women at this stage, were enthousi enthusiastic um, adopters of this, but they had really different experiences of it. And that was because women up until this period of time, their lives were very much kind of controlled and contained very much around the home and domestic duties and the bearing and caring of children. And even exercise up until that point wasn't seen as necessary for them. And some doctors even had been saying that it had been unhealthy for women and uh, detrimental to their matrimonial duties. So you can imagine suddenly just the kind of radical change that cycling brought into these kind of women's lives. It kind of offered them vast new freedoms, independence and social networking opportunities. They're able to have new experiences and adventures, move at new times and at new places and at new kind of thrilling speeds than they'd ever had before. Like it must have been exhilarating for them. And also you can imagine why it was, um, it was such a, a key symbol of social change and a vehicle for uh, women's rights campaigners. It gained a lot of attention in public space. It catalyzed the rational dress discussion that had been around for quite a long time, but just gained a lot more attention. Can you say what the rational dress discussion yes. was, Kat? So this comes down to exactly the problem of clothing, you know. So middle and upper class women, their fashions were quite diverse, but ostensibly they were up to seven pounds of heavy layered petticoats, uh, floor length A-line skirts, tightly laced corsets, tailored blouses, vests, jackets, veils, gloves and, you know, more bits and pieces. So that's quite a lot of material, which is vastly incompatible with the moving machinery of the bicycle. Understood. Yes, probably. <laughs> um, As anyone that's come off a bike because their jeans have been caught in oh the chain, gosh. that alone is bad <laughs> enough. Yeah. Anyway, exactly. Yeah. And newspapers were filled with terrible, really detailed accounts of gruesome crashes of women, often caused by their flapping materials getting caught in the wheels and in the chain rings, causing kind of disfigurement and even death as a result. Pretty much their clothing malfunctioning while they're trying to ride their bikes. But some persisted and just tried to ride as safely as possible. Others turned to rational dress, which um, had been around for quite a long time, but was gaining a lot more attention at this period because of the bicycle, um, predominantly, but other factors. And rational dress, again, a whole range of different styles, but was recognised as a shorter skirt or even no skirt and replacing your laid petticoats with a bloomer or knickerbockers, some kind of bifurcated garment. And basically they're advocating for what they called rational dress over irrational fashion. Now, what I have to ask about that is where you mentioned the skirt or no skirt, just something completely different altogether, mm. which is obviously incredibly practical, but was that seen as scandalous mm. as well? Just like the act of not dressing how a woman is expected to dress or the appropriate attire and being on a bike as well, just the combination of those two things being like a scandalous act for a woman to, to do. 
Exactly. You know, some parts of society were really quite shocked and threatened by the sight of women, even in conventional dress on bicycles, mm. because they were just doing such new and radical and progressive things. They were outside, often unchaperoned, uh, so out on their own at new times and in new places than ever before. Um, and people really felt worried that they were rejecting their otherwise, you know, normative Victorian duties of being a wife or a mother and uh, or a sister. And potentially we're going to threaten the very fabric of Victorian society. And some people responded with barely concealed social violence. You know, they had sticks and stones thrown at them. They were called terrible names. They were denied entry into places they were gossiped about. And this was kind of bad enough for just women in conventional wear, wearing kind of identifiable radical forms of clothing that some people considered to be quite masculine forms of clothing. And so <laughs> they really did suffer quite a lot. And to be on a bicycle riding and then riding in identifiable new forms of cycle wear, you had to be really brave at some time to do it. Mm. So it wasn't just about getting on your bike. It was much more. Kat's talking about the late 19th century here, but I wanted to head back to the central London park for a moment because one of the cyclists had an experience on a bike that shows how little things have changed. I've been quite large my entire time and, like, I have identified myself as a fat person as well and, like, that's one of the things that I felt like, especially in cycling, is, like, can I go and do cycling? Can I call myself a cyclist if I don't fit into the lycra because there's a lot of large uh, cycling clothes that aren't actually large. Mm. <laughs> I also, on my first ever club ride last Saturday, there was four of us, we were riding in Essex and some jerk decided to slow down, honk and shout, you're fat and slow, oh, go God. home. And like, and, but that was, a, that was another reason why I was really happy. I was with other people as like, we were able to all call him jerks and, and get over that. But like, <laughs> like I wasn't alone, but like, it did kind of hit as like, cause that's my biggest fear about is like, someone doesn't take me as a cyclist. Awful to hear, but back in time and back to Kat now, because I really wanted to know, is there any correlation between those women that we know about who did embrace the bike? and rational wear and a broader politics you know to what extent were you know suffragists cyclists and then were there lots of were there lots of anti-suffragist cyclists as well do we know definitely in my research i found certainly one if not a few but certainly one out of my uh, cycle wear inventors who was just a really renowned women's rights activist and she's magnificent she's um, francis henrietta muller she was born in Chile. She spoke about six or maybe eight different languages. She started up a women's newspaper that only hired uh, women and paid them equal pay to the equivalent of what men were doing. She did all of those things and clearly kind of thought this bicycle was this another vehicle for women's emancipation and obviously noticed that clothing wasn't going to fit. So she invented not only one piece, a cycling skirt, but she did a three-piece invention, a convertible cycling skirt, a jacket that fits over it, and also thought women's underwear needs to get better as well. So she then also <laughs> made this bloomer um, blouse onesie, which is kind of pretty cool for even a <laughs> you know, contemporary yeah. eye. But of course, different people had different views on this. Some women just wanted to ride their bicycle and then got, got caught up in it because suddenly they were representative of a particular progressive movement or just suffered very mm. badly the harassment as a result of that. A large part of Kat's research for her book involved looking for and examining some incredible clothing designs that female cyclists were making in the Victorian era. She found that inventive women were actually making and wearing new forms of cycling clothes and patented their new designs. Kat was particularly struck by convertible cycling wear. Those were so interesting because inventors were attempting to engineer technical systems into the infrastructures of their skirts to enable wearers to secretly switch from walking skirts into cycle wear and then back again. So they use a, a fascinating combination of pulley systems and gathering cords and deliberately hidden or concealed kind of button and loop <laughs> mechanisms and more that are mm. hidden kind of inside waistbands or inside the seams of skirts or hidden in the hems. 
that's one of the things I also think that possibly they did their jobs too well at that point. <laughs> maybe that's one of the reasons we don't know about it, combined with, you know, kind of the gender bias of the time of which not a lot of women's inventions really kind of get the attention or the celebratory kind of focus in the past that they should have. Kat, you know that we've got this dress in the exhibition at the British Library, and that seems to me to be a sort of rather lo-fi, home-spun version of what you're talking about. And I wondered if you could talk about what you think about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, It looks to me like a great example of a remarkable convertible cycling costume. And um, I think that um, the convertible cycling costumes that I was researching, quite a lot of them got quite a lot of press. So they would have been really inspiring for lots of home sewing people to kind of try and make something that would have been, you know, similar. So, yeah, I think it's a great example because clearly kind of it transforms from an ordinary walking skirt or a street kind of um, garment into something much more appropriate for cycling. And it has some kind of mechanism that lifts the material up and out of the way of the wheels, which is pretty much what these convertible garments were doing and then enable you to transform it back again, you know, whenever you kind of needed to, so nobody would know your cycling intentions. I was so delighted that Kat liked this object we've got in the exhibition because on the one hand, it really looks like quite an ordinary dress and yet with these hidden ties, it also reveals a sort of extraordinary history. As an avid cyclist herself... Kat pays homage to the generations of women who took the leap onto the bike before her. Well, I come from this long legacy of these quite radical women who are bringing (laughs) together lots of their skills and interests in order to make make some kind of change. And so this has become even more important to me. You know, so it is, cycling is such a multifaceted socio-political, cultural and kind of physical topic that I think is going to kind of fascinate me for many years to come. I think you have answered the next question that I wanted to to ask you because you touched upon it. You said the R word, you said radical. And Mm. I was going to ask you if you still think that cycling has radical implications or potential. I mean, I'm going to quickly caveat it and say my answer to it would be yes. My point of view (laughs) from it I'm looking at is the Black Lives Matter movement that's going on at the moment. Looking at the use of bicycles with the protests that are going on out there. It's huge. Just to jump in here, Jules is referring to how activists in New York City, for example, recently organised bike-specific marches, mass rides which galvanised thousands of cyclists. The power of the bike mustn't be underrated. It's incredible. And yes, there are still radical implications and potential for cycling to be such a huge political movement as well. So I would love to hear your opinions on on this too. Yeah, I completely agree. Like cycling has been radical for a long time. And I Mm. think although lots of things have changed, of course, since the 1890s, there's a lot that also hasn't. So, you know, cyclists in many ways are still fighting to claim space, a legitimate space in public streets. Mm-hmm. You know, women and others are still disproportionately kind of harassed in public for what they wear. And that's, you know, particularly kind of in the way of kind of cycle wear, but obviously in other kind of activities that people do in, in public space. Doing physical activity in public, you know, sweating and exerting yourself, not just on a bicycle, but in other ways, you know, for some people is seen as incompatible to femininity. But in spite of these barriers, women are still getting on the saddle. According to magazine Cycling Weekly, 1.3 million people in Britain have brought a bike during lockdown. Since the pandemic, people wanting to avoid public transport and do more exercise are trying it for the first time, with women's cycling clubs reporting boosts in numbers from Fife to Berkshire to Bristol. As you can imagine, Kat is very happy about this. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I'm really excited by it as well. And I've got a number of friends who have similarly taken this as an opportunity to give it a go in a way that maybe Mm. they wouldn't have done before. You know, there's a and there's a whole range of reasons to why this has happened. There's less traffic, different pressures on time, even though, of course, we know that women have very different pressures on time at the moment. (laughs) Um, But the the weather has been also a good time to give it a go um, summer. And and all of this has created new opportunities to try out new things. And what's really interesting to me is that 
lots of people are trying all different kinds of cycling, not just conventional commuting, right? I kind of see it as really exciting that we continue to experience you know, what the bicycle can bring, which is for many, you know, independence and freedoms and opportunity to kind of like express yourself kind of differently in ways out in public, you know, wearing different things on different types of bicycles and just continuing along that path that was forged for us over a hundred years ago by a whole lot of these pioneering and quite brave women. And there's one woman in particular who has taken the love of cycling to an extreme. Yes, I'm talking about two-time Olympic gold medal winning track cyclist Victoria Pendleton. Victoria is one of Great Britain's most successful female Olympians. Just to paint a picture in case you aren't sure, her discipline involves bikes being raced around a track with competitions usually held in specially built velodromes. It's all about speed and Jules sees Victoria as a really important role model. For me growing up and you weren't really seeing women in cycling on TV or women in cycling doing the thing as I like to say out there. It's the element of feeling like, well, I can't see it, so I can't be it. So seeing somebody like her and the achievements that, that she'd managed to, to, to get in track cycling has just been amazing. So we all met up on Zoom, well, until Jules's internet cut out, but she was able to rejoin the call in a new spot in her house, which had a very exciting backdrop. It's good, because now we can see your bike in the background, so that's good. Bike in the background oh, and an exercise yeah, bike too. Oh, my God, yeah. You're very on brand. This, very on brand. It's very on brand. Yeah, this is a room just full of bikes and there's Bromptons in the corner and all sorts of things, so yes. <laughs> when we'd all calmed down about the bikes, we got back into it. Victoria started by telling us about her cycle-obsessed childhood. I thought that everybody did stuff like this. You know, I had no awareness that there was any other option. You know, you go away at the weekend, you watch your dad race, uh, you get cold on the side of the road. Then when you're old enough to get a racing bike, you get a racing bike and you start racing it. Mm. And that for me was the only thing I'd ever known. And actually I found it weird that people didn't have family sort of sporty pastimes. I was like, well, you don't, you don't do any sports, <laughs> no? Oh, okay. Uh, I wonder if, if it doesn't sound too cheesy to ask, the impact, if you understand how great the impact of your presence is for other women and young girls out there looking at getting into cycling and being mm. able to, I guess, sort of see you in different lights as well is, is important. Mm. Is that something that's ever sort of registered with you? Well, it, it's very interesting that you say that because it took me a long while to feel very, to feel comfortable with uh, sort of showing more than one side of myself because I was always told when I was getting involved with professional sport that, you know, you have to be taken seriously and, you know, you have to act more like a man. You have to, you know, you're dressed in, always dressed in an extra small men's tracksuit and you're pulling the cords really tight to keep the waist up. You know, you're kind of always told that you have to kind of look a certain way. But then when I started to sort of be, I guess, myself a bit more and, and say, well, actually, I am still a woman and I do have other things that I like have interest in. I do like fashion magazines. I do like to put a dress on. I quite like doing my hair, actually, and nails. <laughs> and it doesn't detract from the fact that I'm a serious performer. It doesn't mean that I'm not taking it seriously, which is a really interesting concept, considering that being feminine and taking things seriously can't necessarily be part of the same aspect. Yes. You're like, oh, OK, so my performance isn't speaking for itself. And the fact that I've straightened my hair isn't is an issue, I don't know. <laughs> and I always felt like, look good, feel good, go good. If you feel like confident in your appearance, I'm very particular about everything. You know, my hair would be smooth because I want it to be tidy under the helmet. I'd paint my nails because that doesn't make you slower or faster. It doesn't do anything actually, to be honest, except make you feel better and give you something to do in those boring <laughs> days in the lead up to competition when you're not allowed to go anywhere. Um, I felt very pressurized to, cut my hair short and be more, I don't know what they wanted me to be, mm. but it wasn't me. Did, did that, was that pressure, Victoria, because they had no other model or was it because they felt like a woman expressing herself with her nails and her hair is sort of out of control, that we, we don't know how to place this? Where does it come from, do you think? 
I kind of feel like they'd only ever had successful male athletes in this sport, in this particular environment, and that's the way the men are, and therefore that's the way we all have to be. But the weird thing is, all the girls on the squad now, you you should see the manicures that go on (laughs) pre-competition. I'm just saying, there's some serious work goes on there. We all know, and we've all been told, be yourself. If you try and be someone else, it's exhausting, and you don't need to waste that energy, because you need your energy to go fast. That's it. Just fast. Hearing that there's confidence knocks that have happened and the fact that you're really frank about that is really powerful as well because people, obviously, you know, they see you as Victoria Pendleton, they see your Olympic wins, all of your successes. I guess, is it liberating to be able to to talk about it and, and freeing? I mean, I've always been a very honest individual and I don't feel that there's any... I don't feel embarrassed about expressing my own weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and I've always been that way. However, I have been criticised by some of the coaching staff over the years to say that I, you know, I'm giving my opponents an advantage over me or whatever because I'm showing my vulnerabilities. And I was like, yeah, but I'm still going to win it. Yeah. I'm just going to have some bad points now and again. And I'm just proving that I'm human. And actually, I bet all of you guys are having it, but you're just not expressing it. I struggle and I really struggle sometimes, but that doesn't mean I will not be a champion. And if one person has heard me and thought, actually, I have weak moments, but I could too also be a champion one day. That's a, it's worth it. And by the way, I'm still going to win. <laughs> Watch this space. I'm hearing a theme You'll here. There's a theme emerging yeah. in this story. <laughs> I often wonder, and I don't know if you, you wonder this as well, like all of the negative feedback that you say you've, you've had from people, like, you know, if you're too emotional or, you know, you wear your heart on your sleeve or things like that. Are men likely to be told that when they're getting ready to take part in their cycling activities? No, I've, I've never really heard a guy be sort of questioned or criticised for his aspects of his personality beyond the physical performance. Mm. And also I think people feel it's more it's easier really to comment on a woman and, and her style or her prowess. It's probably got worse when I started beating them as well. <laughs> Um, Do you think, Victoria, that it's an accident that cycling was the sport where women really broke through? Or is there something about cycling and women? And I'm thinking about that in terms of the kind of longer history of women and cycling and cycling mm. being such a kind of radical, liberating machine for women in the sort of late 19th century, early 20th century. I mean, because it's a mode of transport as well as a sport. It's got purpose to it. And I think also the fact that women having to tie their skirts in knots up the middle Mm. or put some plus fours on and sit astride something is quite empowering. And I think for a lot of women, that would have been a a huge step forward in in sort of the range which they could cover in terms of location and the things they could do. Um, And I do think that that kind of lends itself to encouraging women to sort of give it a go. And then you get the, the wonderful, inspirational role models like Beryl Burton coming in and handing a man some jelly babies as she overtook yes. him in a time trial, asking him if he needed any help. <laughs> just, you know, it just goes to show that it kind of reduces the gap between male and female performance in many ways as well, because we in sprinting have a one second rule. So if Chris Hoy does a 200 metre time trial and I do a 200 metre time trial, the difference is one second, one second rule just one second there's not many sports where men and women could be so closely matched in in their ability in in some ways i'd Mm. never thought of that before those boundaries become much less obvious between Mm. male and female in that way it's it's one of the things that's still going on both elite level and even grassroots level just getting that Mm. equality in in cycling just that gender equality that still feels like to me sometimes it still feels like there's a long way to go Oh, there is a long way to go. (laughs) I actually want to chip in here and tell you this really, this very annoying story. I'd retired. I'm out on my road bike. I'm climbing this small hill into the Chilterns on the road. Mm -hmm. It's a nice bendy, weaving road. And I see this guy in front of me. He's a spec to start with. And I think, is he a serious one or a hobby cyclist? I don't know. Anyway, I catch him up quite quickly and I'm not trying to I'm not I'm just going my own speed I overtake him at which point 
he pipes up. Oh, I must have been daydreaming. Oh, like he needed an excuse to be overtaken oh, by a ponytail. Gosh. Puts a spurt on and then his knees are out and he's like, <laughs> he's really thrashing around the road. And I just let him go because I'm, like, I'm just going to keep my own pace here. If I wanted to race you, believe me, I could. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought to myself, there's a turning on the right and the left and he's going to take one of them as soon as he gets to the summit because I think he's blown a gasket. Yes. Right. I look right as I get to the top. 50 yards down the road, he's got his foot off and he's having a rest at the side of the road. And I was like, yep. But the fact that he needed to say that to me as I overtook him, (laughs) he was daydreaming because how could a woman overtake him on a hill? And I was like, are you kidding? Do you even know who I am? (laughs) But that's not the point. I was like, wow, wow, (laughs) wow. I was just like, that's insecure. (laughs) And it's like you have that experience if you're out on, you know, weekend rides, even if I'm sat waiting in traffic when I'm ready to go on my bike, I can see if there is a a dude on a bike next to me. (laughs) He is already calculating how quickly he can pull off as soon as the green light goes so that he can like (laughs) put me in the dust. And I'm just like, bro, behold, that a woman will (laughs) be faster off the line. This, 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 Um, This cannot be. And I'm just like, why do you feel the need to be like this and what would be wrong with go on girl yeah go on there nice work (laughs) (laughs) oh no but yeah no 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 obviously talking about this story where you'd retired from cycling and I wanted Mm. to touch upon that just obviously when you retired from cycling after the 2012 Olympics how were you feeling once you'd, you'd retired? I don't know if it was, you know, any elements of sadness with it or elements of feeling like this has been an amazing mm. journey. It's time for me to, to go and do something else. Well, it took me about 18 months to get my bike out after retiring from the Olympics. You know, my heart was broken because I had to say that it was my choice I was retiring when fundamentally it was because I'd been forced out. They didn't want me on the team any further because they felt that four years I was going to be too old and I wasn't necessarily going to be able to deliver. And I just, it actually broke my heart. I bagged up everything, everything cycling, everything GB. If you'd walked into my house, you would never have known what I did for a living. Oh, gosh. It was very closely related to who I was as a human being. It's all I'd ever known. It's what I'd been successful at. As in, and removing the performance from Victoria was difficult. It's like, who am I without this? I don't... I haven't got anything. I enjoy the sport now more as I did as a child before it got serious, which is nice. But it did take me a long time for those wounds to heal. Mm. I don't ever feel I was done age 30. Is it almost like having unfinished business in that sense? That <laughs> it's there's... always. My life is unfinished business. Now I've got motorcycles. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, no. It's a new hobby. Oh, no. Um, I'm loving this. I'm absolutely loving this. It's just always having that that drive and determination and just trying something new, I think, is incredible. I am 100% supporter for people giving things a go. We have so much holding us back, and as women in particular, sport-related, we're sort of layered with so many layers of insecurity about that's not our domain or we shouldn't do that or, you know, maybe it'll be dangerous or it's not for a woman, which is all rubbish. If you fancy giving it a go, give it a go. I mean, I became a jockey, a jump jockey, age 34, never ridden a horse before in my life. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, it's incredible that you're a jockey, you're, you're getting into motorbiking as well. There are so many other things and... It kind of feels like cycling has sort of been, I don't know if it's over the top to say it, but like the genesis for so many other things Mm, to happen in your life as well. It definitely has. In some ways, I think, you know, going really fast and having physical condition because you've trained it, they have definitely primed me to be more outgoing and upfront about taking on other challenges. There's a, a special heightened terror that comes with being a woman that comes with being a woman doing Mm. something that's outside of what people expect of a woman to to, Mm. to do or expect a woman not to do the different women that I've met who have talked about the freedom that cycling has given them both physically and mentally is incredible Mm. and then looking Mm -hmm. and drilling down into the history of women and cycling as well it's just like 
there is so much here. There is so much going on with this humble piece of, of machinery that we're on that's taking us to places both physically and mentally beyond what we think we're capable of because of what people are telling us as women that we are not capable of. Whether that be cycling or any other sport, doing something that can bring you joy is so important. And people, if you don't have something that brings you a freedom, a joy, a feeling of adrenaline, anything mm. that brings you a feeling, you can get very lost in a very numb, very dark place. I wanted to ask one more thing. What one thing should change, Victoria, to get more women on bikes? You know, there is still a lot of sexism in sport. There's no denying it. There's racism in sport. There's no denying it. And it's changing for the better. And through my lifetime, I'm very lucky and very privileged to have existed in a time of cycling where I went from being the only woman on the team to there being an equal 50-50 split and the women being more consistently successful than the men and now when I go out on my bike and I see groups of women out road cycling I feel like a little in my heart because I remember being a kid and it'd be like dad 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 there's a lady on a bike like it was a really unusual thing to see and now I see equally as many women on the road enjoying riding in the countryside or you know in the city commuting I see more women than I've ever seen. So I know and I believe there has been a drastic, drastic improvement in, in women's participation right through to the elite level of sport. And for that, I am supremely grateful. We're not there yet, but my gosh, it's come a long, long way in my lifetime. It's been positive to see some of the changes that, that are happening within cycling, both grassroots, elite level, changes that still need to happen within the cycling industry itself, the issues of representation and being able to see someone that you can identify with and, and recognise. So you, Victoria, saying about like being out with your dad and pointing and like, you know seeing another lady cyclist. Um, for, for me, growing up, it's actually being able to point out and see a black woman on a bike as well and just say, mm. you know, that they're out there doing the thing. And I know you have people up and coming through the ranks. So obviously you've got Aisha McGowan, who's the first female professional African-American road cyclist. You've got Tennille Campbell out there doing the thing as well from Trinidad and Tobago, but there is still so much more. I don't want it to be that I'm giving you two names of two female black cyclists. Mm. There needs to be more than that. There's so much to do and there needs to be more female, more diverse representation in management levels yes. and higher. When I was training in the elite team, there was only a couple of women who worked in world class and they worked in the office doing admin. Mm. It's a middle-aged white male sport, which is unfortunately not good enough. It's got to represent as a population, not just one small niche of that one middle-aged white guy, that mammal. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. That man in Lycra. It's that man true. in Lycra. Who, by the way, thinks he knows everything. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> oh. oh, did I mention I might beat you, by the way? <laughs> I think you might have done. She really is a powerhouse. You can tell why she's a champion. It's worth mentioning that there have been some positive changes recently within British cycling. That's the main national governing body for the cycling sport in Great Britain. Earlier this year, for example, they announced plans for a new long-term project to tackle the diversity gap within British cycling in the racing community, volunteer network, recreation programmes and the organisation's own workforce. But as Jules and Victoria were saying, of course, this is still unfinished business. We'd spoken to the wonderful women of Velociposse, cycling and sewing sociologist and historian Kat Jungninkel, and the Olympian legend Victoria Pendleton. So I wanted to know from Jules what she'd learned from these wonderful guests that there is so much more to cycling than meets the eye. That's something that I already knew for all of the years that I've been on a bike for, but the different stories and the intersectionality that exists between the cycling stories of the, the two women that I've spoken to today is incredible. And that 
Every single day on a bike truly is a school day. You will learn something new from cycling <laughs> and it will blow your cycling socks off every single time. So it's been been brilliant to, to hear Kat talking about obviously the, the, the history of cycling clothing, the emancipation of women through the act of being on a bike and having practical clothing to ride around in. Listening to Victoria talking about her relationship with professional cycling, what her life has been like since stepping away from that, the, the ups and downs that were involved being at elite level and just what cycling means to her in general. Even at her highest level, she was still getting criticisms from people and people trying to dim her light, which was just depressing to hear. Even Unreal. at that yeah. level, there's still someone trying to bring you down. And she was particularly struck by her morning with the Velociposse cycling crew in Regent's Park. It was brilliant riding with Velociposse. Listening to the stories that they were telling me about the reasons why they joined Velociposse and why it meant so much to them and their relationship with being on a bike was touching the impact of being with that group of women for, for a few hours doing laps around Regent's Park. Something I'm going to take away and, and keep in my heart for the rest of, of my life and has made me look differently at the impact being in a cycling group like that can, can have. If listeners could take away one thing or there could be one thing that you want to change for a listener or in their actions, what would it be? Oh, that cycling is for everybody. There shouldn't be any barriers to entry to get on a, a bike, no matter your age size, shape, gender, race. It's this beautiful, unifying thing that everyone should be able to, to dabble in and enjoy at their own pace as well. And the fact that history is still being made by everybody getting on, on a bike at the moment as well. So all of this will go into some wonderful pantheon of, of, of knowledge of, of cycling. So yeah, we've, we've skipped all the way back to the 18 and the 1900s and we're here talking about the impacts of cycling in a pandemic in 2020. It's all good. I am feeling particularly good after speaking to today's guests and my fantastic co-host Jules Walker. If you've been inspired by this podcast and want to learn more about the history of cycling or indeed want to get on a bike, do check out Kat and Jules's brilliant books or head to the British Library website where we have articles on the history of cycling or indeed go to British Cycling. Their website has lots of useful information about how to get on the saddle. Unfinished Business is a PixU production for the British Library. The business is still not done. So join me in two weeks time when I'll be exploring the extremely topical subject of intersectionality. But for now, I'm inspired to plan my next cycle ride. And it seems so are Jules and Victoria. We should go for a ride. I would love to. I would absolutely yeah. love to. Riders. Rosner.